That little cell phone in your pocket can do more than you think. Rosa Wang works with Opportunity International to bring mobile banking and digital financial services to places as remote as a tomato farm in Malawi or an open air market in Ghana. She's found that the ability to use cell phones for banking and to transfer money digitally has incredible potential for empowering women in particular to save money, grow their small businesses, and send their children to school. In her new book titled Strong Connections, Stories of Resilience from the Far Reaches of the Mobile Phone Revolution, she says it might even have the power to break the cycle of intergenerational poverty in some of the poorest and most rural places on earth. Rosa, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Good to be here. So what made you want to write this book? So it was interesting. About five years before I started writing the book in earnest, I changed the way in which I communicated um, at conferences or or workshops, um, at industry sort of events, so that instead of a more technical presentation, uh, what I started to do was to weave stories uh, and stories about uh, the real people that I had met, you know, when I was on the ground and doing the field work. And what I discovered was that people would connect with these stories. So I would often have someone come up to me and they would be able to recite the entire story back to me, or they would be able to talk about their own work um, in quite a lot of detail. And so I found that this had a real way to connect with people and that they really seemed to immerse themselves and it really seemed to be a way in which they could relate to people who live in circumstances very different from ours. And what I also thought was that uh, for the people who are working in the field, that often we tend to work in sort of an isolated space, and that there's much of, of about what we were doing that the rest of the world would be very interested in, but really didn't have sort of a window to look at. And, and so that's what I really wanted to capture with the book. So let's back up for a moment and talk about how you came to this work, which you've been doing for about two decades, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you actually switched careers from investment banking. So can you tell us how that switch came about? It's quite interesting because I would say a lot of things um, in my life have been, weren't necessarily planned. Uh, So I had been working in investment banking, in portfolio management, um, in financial capitals like New York uh, and Hong Kong. And that was, it was a really interesting and exciting place and sort of um, very much in terms of contemporary things. And so you're always responding to current news. You're always having quite an adrenaline filled uh, sort of thing. But some point in about 2002, I decided that I wanted to maybe step away from investment banking a bit. And because that's when there were a lot of interesting threads that were being woven, where people were becoming more interested in things like environmental issues, um, there became much more of an awareness of how to, uh, I think that the use of the internet was still in relatively early phases, but how the use of the internet and digital information could start becoming transformative. And so I started to um, explore and I I did a round the world trip uh, after I left investment banking. And basically the the first, uh, within the first week after finishing my round the world trip, I was called by a friend who said, do you know about social entrepreneurship? 
And I had to admit, I didn't know very much about it, but I was quite interested. And she introduced me to some of the leading social entrepreneurs uh, through the organization Ashoka. And through that, I started learning by observing the work of the Ashoka Fellows, how they were using market-based systems, how they were using business models, but to address some deep social issues and deep social problems, such as uh, the lack of literacy or such as maternal health. And yet they were doing so in really creative, innovative ways. Um, And that's when I became quite committed to the work of the social entrepreneurs and found that to be just an incredibly interesting and quite dynamic space. You know, as I was reading your book, I was realizing the power of mobile phones in a way that I think that you might have also when you first came to it. Mobile phones for us are, you know, I mean, they're they're such a huge part of our lives, but they can do so much for people in places that we we, we wouldn't have expected. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about how you're talking about social entrepreneurship how does how how does mobile technology kind of factor into that? And what were you finding in these countries? Well, it's interesting because this is what I discovered by going there and actually seeing it. Part of it, I think, is there is a bit of skepticism. You know, we're talking about a sophisticated electronic device, but we're talking about going into areas where people do not have electricity in their homes, um, and and many of these people also do not have things like running water. And so I think there's a a bit of skepticism about how could a phone make such a difference in a place like that. Um, What I discovered was that, in fact, because there was this lack of services, that the phone took on a role of sort of substituting or creating new ways of doing things. So instead of transport, which is very difficult because many of the roads are not paved, Um, You know, some parts in in remote parts of the world, you're going by canoe for hours and hours in order to get to the larger village. Uh, But instead of uh, taking the very costly and very time consuming uh, transport, then people would be able to pick up a phone and call someone. Um, We saw that uh, a lot of the use uh, came early on with uh, shopkeepers and people who have to deal with inventory. And so they need to know, you know, how much do I purchase? Because I'm going to make the costly trip to town, which they might do once or twice a month. Um, And then what is it that I need to pick up? And the phone became quite an important way in which they could call um, the suppliers and say, okay, have this ready for me so that when I, when I arrive, I can maximize you know, my, my time in town. Um, but what I discovered was that there wasn't really a limit. It was really once you had the creativity applied to it and people started having phones in their hands, it started to permeate all kinds of areas. Uh, so I mentioned maternal health because that was one of the ones that captivated me uh, quite early on. And so, you know, they would have messages, just simple text messages that might go to a pregnant woman that might say something like, uh, it's the beginning of your second trimester, please go and see the midwife. Um, or a reminder, you know, you should take your supplements today, uh, things like that. And so we started seeing it being used in very creative ways. And as I said, I think because many of the other services were not really available, uh, many people turned to their phones as a way in which they began to create some of these new areas and new services. And so really it was a, a very, it's a very dynamic place where creativity is applied. I was struck by some of the images that you painted in your book. I think the word I'm looking for is ingenuity. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It really surprised me. It sounded like it surprised you as well. 
when you first sort of started seeing it and discovering it and going into these places? Yeah, that was some of what I was trying to describe in the book. So when you see something and, you know, like you said, maybe like a, tr- a very traditional village where there's a lack of electricity in a lot of places, a, a lack of other um, good services. And then suddenly someone pulls out a phone and it's not just any kind of phone, but a brand new, rather sleek phone. Um, I describe in one of the chapters when I'm in rural Tanzania in a place called Morogoro. So this is about five hours inland from the capital of Dar es Salaam. And that's when I encountered the first um, tri-band phone. And and so this is where you can have three SIM cards that reside in it at once, because at the time in Tanzania um, and in many other places, they didn't have the cooperation among the networks, but you had a lot of competition for services. So oftentimes you'll find someone to purchase a relatively low cost SIM card, but they would purchase it from each of the three service providers and they would just rotate and see who's giving the um, more attractive sort of promotion or the more attractive deal right now, that's the service I'm going to temporarily use. And they'll notify people that, oh, I've got, you know, two numbers or three numbers or something. But it was it was that sort of juxtaposition of a very sleek new device, including uh, more sophisticated than, than, you know, what I was seeing in, in the US and UK. And uh, yet it was in this rural sort of farm village in Tanzania. And that's when I realized that, Ah, there's something about the phone and the decisions that people are making that's perhaps even underestimated. And that when you have someone, again, that where there are very few services and the phone can make such a difference, the investment that they will put into it and the savings that they'll set aside uh, in order to get a very high-end phone, that can be very, very substantial. And I think that was part of the um, underestimation that even a lot of the mobile providers uh, in their early days when they would forecast what is the size of this market or or how many customers do we expect to have, you know, in the next five years, they almost always undercounted very significantly. And part of it was, I think, that they did not think that people living in very low-income areas would um, put aside a lot of savings and would prioritize the investment in a phone the way in which they did. Can you tell us about some of the ways in which you're seeing cell phones transform these women's lives? I mean, that's basically asking you to sum up the whole book, but could you tell us about (laughs) maybe one or two of the striking examples that kind of drove this home for you? So among the things that I found really interesting, one was that um, you would find that women felt that the ability to use the phone, uh, one is it would increase their sort of um, economic circumstances. So I was obviously working in an organization which offers microfinance loans. Uh, these are small scale loans, uh, primarily to women, where um, the a, gr- a small group of women would co-guarantee each other. And so this substitutes because they might not have collateral or anything that, that uh, a financial institution would consider collateral so that they could be lent to, but then they would give them um, small scale business loans so that they could buy inventory or maybe expand their business, um, but use that in order to create much greater streams of income. And what um, I continued to hear as I would meet these women um, and ask them, you know, how how have things changed for you? Uh, They would talk about 
One is, of course, that they were economically better off. And among things that they would always mention were things like, I'm now able to send my children to school. So um, in many places, even if the government is paying for uh, the education, they would have to buy uniforms, they would have to buy books and supplies. And so without some form of, of cash income, uh, the children might have to drop out of school. And so the having uh, digital access and a way in which they can boost their business really did help the whole family. Um, and I talk about, you know, breaking the cycle of poverty. So you really want to break that intergenerational poverty that the next generation would have education. But another thing that I was really struck by was how many women said, our husbands treat us better because we are now contributing financially. And I think this is the um, kind of individual autonomy uh, that you want to see, the sort of empowerment you know, within a household, that the status of the woman, despite the sort of historical patriarchal ties and other things that many of these women would convey that inside their own household, that their husband would respect them more, they would be more involved with uh, financial decisions for the whole family, um, and they were treated as, as someone who was financially literate and, and could contribute to. We would see a lot of women where it really changed their confidence level. Um, and they became a leader within their community. So they would help the other women learn how to use their phones. Um, they might become, say, a leader in their church group uh, or other community kinds of things, but really change the confidence level. So they would stand up uh, and, and be a leader. And I think that just underpins how much of an empowering role and how, uh, like you said, if in a place like, like I now live in the UK, but in places like in the US, um, or in Europe, uh, most people are sort of accustomed to the phone and they are almost a bit cynical about it. And I think undervalue that for someone like uh, a poor woman, um, let's say in, in rural India, uh, it can make a great deal of difference to her confidence and to her level of empowerment. It seemed that the combination of bank accounts that could be accessed by cell phones also seemed to give them more control over their money. You had women who had their own bank account accessed through, I thought this was fascinating, they can't read or write, a biometric mm -hmm. scan, right? Where they scan their eyes or scan their fingerprints. And so it really belongs to them. This, I think, was one of the most powerful things that, that I saw, particularly in some of the more challenging places to work uh, in India. Uh, so in India, the government there has um, undertaken a whole series of measures to try to improve the sort of uh, what they call financial inclusion, but giving formal financial services. Um, but despite having some Herculean measures, including introducing a, a, a comprehensive identification program, collecting the biometrics, the Aadhaar program, um, what one of the things that I think they underestimated was that still uh, many of the people most in need of this uh, don't have the literacy. And so you need to have um, sort of an assisted environment in which uh, they, can, they can receive these services. But the point that you make about then it's in the name of the woman, this is quite important because what had happened before, and, and by before, I mean like less than a decade ago, um, if a, a state government or someone was paying welfare benefits or rural subsidy, uh, as they do in many states of India, uh, to an area, you know, they used to give the chieftain sacks of cash. Um, and then the, the chieftain would sort of then distribute the sacks of cash. And because these are often patriarchal areas, um, oftentimes it would go, say, to the husband or to the man of the house, and he would make the decisions uh, about 
you know, what's what to be done with the money. But now with the accounts and with the biometric, uh, this means that a woman, even though she can't read, she can present, say, her thumbprint, uh, place it on a thumbprint reader. It accesses her record instantaneously. Uh, if she has some money, then she can give it to an agent who is a person to sort of assist the woman, and she can accumulate the funds in her own name. And this means that she's the only one that can uh, withdraw it. Uh, so if uh, her husband you know, wanted to take all the money and sort of run away with it, he does not have access because he can't access her biometric account. And so the ability of safeguarding uh, the funds for the woman and the ability for her to receive the things she's entitled to, such as these government payments, those have all been enabled by the combination. And it's, I, I don't wanna say it's any one thing, it's the combination of all of these things. It's, it's the biometric readers, it's a series of agents, it's the mobile signal that's required um, to, to make all of these take place. And it is the comprehensive identification system of Aadhaar that, that's been put in place. But all of those things have come together that really then enables the woman to have access to that which is rightfully hers. I think one place where you talked in your book, and I really want to talk about this, um, where all those factors kind of came together to make me go, whoa, I see why this is working, is in India, right? They had a couple of small bills that were used very frequently by people in poverty in rural areas in this cash-based system. And the, the government just got rid of those and said, we're not gonna use those bills anymore. And overnight they became worthless. And so mm -hmm. these families and women who had these small bills kind of squirreled away, basically hidden in like coffee cans around their homes, suddenly all of that was worthless. And all I could think was, if only they had been putting it all into an electronic bank account, right? Yeah. That really drove it home for me. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And that was that was quite an emotional sort of thing for me to write out, the scene where I'm sitting on the floor with the women, because it, it really was the sequence where, um, you know, I'm there visiting. This is in Bhopal in India. I'm invited to sit on the floor with the women because I'm there with the, the head of this group called Samita, and she is also a woman. Um, she asks the male staff to exit. And so the women would answer quite candidly in a way that if the male staff had remained, um, they, they probably wouldn't have. And we started to ask the women, you know, what do you do with your savings? And they would talk about, oh, I hide it. I hide it in the garden. I hide it in, you know, these cans, these canisters and, and uh, put it in places sometimes I forget. And it was all uh, quite light and humorous. It was one of the few times that, that people were laughing. Um, and then, you know, I, I left Bhopal and it was exactly just a couple of days later uh, that the government announced the demonetization and no one had received warning. Uh, certainly um, uh, these women didn't, but all of the microfinance uh, organizations that I was partnering with and working with on the ground in India, uh, they did not have any warning and the major banks did not have warning. And so you started seeing um, in the news just these massive lines of people who are desperate to try to deposit their cash uh, into a, a formal account or into some form of electronic money before it would become worthless. And, uh, and you know, the government said dozens of people died just standing in the lines and, and many people on the ground said that's an undercount. But it really was uh, because those things happened in such close sequence, it really had a huge emotional impact 
um, in terms of, of my thinking and, and my sort of appreciation of the vulnerability that these women were under um, because they hadn't put the money away formally. Uh, because they were just, you know, and, and this would be, for example, the equivalent of the $10 bill and the $20 bill. What happens if those went away? And that's what they were secretly sort of saving up, um, trying to, to save for some something. And it, that was just all erased. And it was very much uh, the sense then that, okay, not only do we have the elements that are possible um, to try to bring some of these benefits to these women, but it's now absolutely essential because it's really, you know, we now see the downside of what happens if, if they're not protected, what's, what happens if they don't access the formal services. So what's changed over 20 years working in this field? What have you seen change and, and where does it go from here? What more needs to be done? So I, the thing that I, that really struck me when I was writing particularly um, some of the statistical parts of the book or referring to certain statistics was just how rapid the pace of change was uh, in all of this time. So during the last two decades, and I was reflecting on this because, um, of course, you know, when I was a graduate student at Princeton, um, I, I finished my, my degree in 1991, and all of the events and basically the, the mass proliferation of phones all over the world and the change in which uh, everyone's day-to-day -day activities have changed because of these phones, that's all taken place just you know, post-graduation um, in that period. And, and so the, the rapid pace of change just really struck me as I was pulling the scenes together and, and sort of filling in some of the backstory of what was going on um, uh, in terms of what was going on in the industry and, and what was going on as the expansion of, of phones was taking place. Um, I think we're going to continue to see, obviously not this pace because we have uh, quite widespread use of phones now, but I think we'll continue to see more and more services added onto this um, and we'll see combinations of services. So I think we'll, we'll see things like uh, greater use of biometrics. Uh, so for example, in the in refugee communities where a person um, does not have strict documents, the biometric uh, way of, of access um, and the biometric way of identification seems to be um, to have a lot of advantages. I think we'll also see more customization. So people are starting to recognize, okay, in addition to say English or English and maybe the main language of you know, Swahili, we can now offer services um, in using things like voice. So it can be recorded in all of these minority dialects uh, or, or lesser, uh, smaller uh, dialects um, in a lot of countries. And so I think that will result in more personalization. Um, one of the things I was just sort of didn't have enough time to delve into a huge amount was that there, this of course introduces an, some risks um, I, I don't want to be naive to the fact that when you have a powerful technology tool, it will have consequences, both positive and negative. And I think there are concerns about um, things like uh, 
you know, customer protection, uh, what happens if you have an unsavory person trying to take advantage of a less educated person, um, things like data protection, you know, who owns the data, who has access to it. And um, some of the questions that we encountered were, can you adequately train someone? Do they fully appreciate what it means when you, when you try to train a person about you need to really protect, say, your PIN code? in your access code uh, to your phone um, because, you know, they are living in very low income circumstances. And I think what we're seeing is, is of course, that then puts them at greater risk. Uh, but I think we will see all of these things kind of um, interacting and being part of the fabric where people need to have an open discussion in these uh, developing areas. What are the positive and negative consequences and what happens to um, communities as you introduce more and more ways for people to interact digitally and more ways for uh, the pace of change really to accelerate. Sure, I can see that really opening the door for the need for more education around data literacy and, and, and some other things like that, training and better understanding regulations and safeguards and all of those other things that go along with a digital revolution, just like we've seen here in the States and in a lot of other places. Yeah, I'm expecting to see a lot more. One of the things that I would like to see happen um, in, the, in the book where I look at sort of the history of the, the recent history uh, of the early days of the mobile phone, um, one of the, the things that was striking to me was the importance of standards. Um, and it's interesting because this is something very, very few people have asked me about, you know, a lot people have asked a lot more sort of personal questions that have come out of the book, but very few people have, have sort of talked about the standards. And it was, it was very interesting that um, basically there had been uh, agreements among different countries and different bodies to agree to a set of standards. So basically the devices that one manufacturer would make would be able to talk to another manufacturer would be compatible with the masts that were there and all of the other infrastructure. And I think that's something in this sort of um, close-knit collaboration of independent parties that I think gives a, a roadmap for ways in which things can become highly scalable and ways in which entrepreneurs can think about introducing things quite widely uh, is, is through that. So I think that um, the early history of the mobile phone embeds a lot of uh, very interesting things that I, I think will be part of, of the discussion for years to come. You know, that gets through a lot of my questions. Is there anything else you'd like to add or anything else you'd like to mention or talk about? So among the things that, one of the things that I thought was also really interesting was in the way in which the mobile phone is sort of closing the information gap to rural areas. Um, so when I uh, first joined Opportunity International, that was largely um, working in conjunction with the agriculture program because we were trying to reach more remote uh, rural communities, which are really the farming communities. And so to the extent that agriculture uh, in developing areas is such a major part of, of these developing economies. And so many people um, are engaged in agriculture as, as their labor and as their way of earning income. I see that as becoming a really important part of the discussion of, of kind of how to develop rural economies more and how to sort of uh, close that rural urban uh, income gap. 
Um, and then it, it lends itself, I think, also to, um, to the natural extension because agriculture, particularly in Africa, is, is where we're seeing some of the most acute uh, signs of climate change. Um, so you're seeing drought, um, a lot of people trying to, to turn more to things like climate smart agriculture. Uh, but I think all of these key issues are intertwined. And when working in areas like economic development, um, you can't just sort of segment one thing and uh, to the exclusion of another, but I think ultimately they're all sort of intertwined. Um, but I think digital has uh, a key role to play in some of the big challenges that, uh, that everyone is seeing before us. This is really interesting. I could talk for a really long time, but I think I think we might be out of time. So I'm gonna say thank you so much for taking the time um, to talk to me about all of this. Thank you, it's been good to be here. Podcast is a monthly interview podcast produced by the Princeton Alumni Weekly. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. You can read transcripts of every episode on our website, paw.princeton.edu. Music for this podcast is licensed from Universal Production Music.